Are megachurches inherently ineffective in biblical pastoring? Does the desire for more members force them to water down the gospel? Today on Theology Unplugged, Michael, Tim, JJ, and Sam discuss the merits and pitfalls of megachurches. Guys, we got a, a issue here that I need to talk to you all about, JJ, Sam, uh, Tim, and it's probably going to offend you all because it's something that uh, I've got to bring up. You offend me every day, so I'm just used to it. So well, well you keep guys it flowing, are brother. all, uh, here's, here's what I'm doing, okay? I've got, to, number one, I've got to talk about church. We're continuing our broadcast on this. Number two, I've got to talk about the evils of megachurches. Oh, man, what a softball topic. Why don't you pick one that's a little harder for us? Evils. Yeah, I what, know. Do you agree? you agree with that? Are you on my side? Well, are you... Okay, so I do agree that there are a lot of perceived evils. Now, I'm not showing my cards there that I think they're not true. I think that there are real—when you have a church that gets so large that people in the church don't know who their pastor is, you know, personally, pastor doesn't know who they are, um, that uh, maybe they've never even met their pastor before after going to the church for five years. When I mean, there are, there are real complications of how do you disciple thousands of people. And so there are well, a lot of Wait a minute. You're way ahead. You're questions. way ahead. You're way well, ahead. Well, I mean, I, I, I need know, to I give— know. The drop the ball, you know. I know, but we got to talk about what a mega church is and kind of put the okay field easy. Out here a church for, for it, the audience. A mega church is a large church. All right. Well, <laughs> technical definition is it's a church of two thousand or more. Or more. That's that, that's the new definition. Well, that's the old definition. Okay. In fact, my guess is there have been so many of them appear, yeah. and they're now getting so big they've probably increased it uh, by a couple of thousand. Who's in charge of who classifies? <laughs> uh, we are, we are as okay. of now. <laughs> From now on, I say a mega church is only 1,000 or above. No, That's what you... it was whenever uh, I was at Stonebriar. I remember when we talked about it because I was a pastor at a church that was growing quite large, and we talked about mega church and issues with that. And Is Carl, that a new term? Is that a bi- in the Bible, mega church? Carl, it, Carl George yeah. used to write extensively on this in the 70s, and he would talk about how a mega church was incredibly rare, and you hardly found them anywhere. Um, and that just sounds so dated now, yeah. since obviously there's nothing rare about them anymore. Is it? Ha, have they grown in the last, I mean, couple of decades? Most definitely, yeah. And I, th- I think technology has greatly assisted that with video being so prevalent. And, uh, you know, it used to be in the days that of— That seems uh, like it would take away from it. So. Well, in the days of Charles Spurgeon, you know, Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s had a megachurch, but you think about it, he didn't have amplification of his, his voice. Um, I think up to, sometimes it was two to four thousand people. I think Kidding. the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and you know he had no magna, like so he wrote chapters on how to project your voice. And so I think a lot of times it was just practical. You couldn't fit so many people in a room where everybody could hear the person preaching. But now that's not an issue, and so I think it's allowed for the church to be able to grow. Why do we need to talk about it? What's the big deal? Why is this in it? Where we're talking about church, we we've been on this series, and we say let's pause during this broadcast and well, talk only about megachurch. I, I think, the, I'm just thinking immediately off the top of my head, there are at least two reasons. Number one, some people are convinced. Number one, because I told you guys. Number one, some people are convinced that to get to that size exposes you to certain temptations and dangers that you, that you ought to avoid. Namely, things such as watering down the message, paring off the rough edges of the gospel because you don't want to offend people and you want to do whatever is necessary to increase the size of the congregation. Um, and I, so that, that's one of them is that, that there are certain intrinsic temptations to which you become exposed. And then the second one is that the larger you get, the less effective you are, as Tim mentioned at the very outset, in just one-on-one close-knit community pastoral ministry and accountability 
the, the, it, it creates an opportunity for the anonymous Christian, the person to just slip in the back, sit through a service, and then disappear, never be challenged, uh, never be called to, to engage. Now, again, can that happen in a small church? Well, it can, but it's harder. So those are just a couple of the reasons. And then um, I think probably, um, you know, just to add a third one, is that there are some significant examples of megachurch pastors who have gone off the rails theologically. Who, uh, who have so reconfigured the nature of the gospel um, that some believe they did it in order to maintain the size of their congregations, that, well, if I really preach the hard edge and, and the full counsel of God, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my, my crowd. And so, um, I mean, I don't know if we can mention this. I haven't even read it, but there's a book out that just was just released called The Ostinification of, of American Christianity. And it's uh, basically taking the largest megachurch, uh, Joel Osteen's church in Houston, and saying uh, that there is a message there, there is a method involved in building that size of a congregation that is detrimental to the very essence of the Christian faith. Well, let me try to get candid with all of you, especially J.J. and Sam, because you guys are pastors at a church. Uh, I think me and Tim can, can grab a hold of this as well, but let, just try to be a can, as unplugged and candid as you can with me, okay? Whenever I, my very first Bible study that I ever did or public thing that I ever invited people to and said, I'm going to be teaching was probably back in 94, 93. And I put out these flyers all over the place. I mean, I was putting them on cars and it was called the All-American Bible Study because <laughs> I worked at All-American Fitness Center and, and it was uh, something that they approved and said I could do. And I was holding it at a different church. And so, I mean, it was just weeks and weeks. I was so excited. I prepared and prepared. You know how you over-prepare at the beginning and you're basically going to give them everything you know about it. I'm just excited as can be. And I'm sitting there first day on a Tuesday night, 7.30, and I'm waiting. I'm there 30 minutes early, and I'm becoming <laughs> 7, 7.15, and nobody showed up yet. I'm okay. I'm pacing a little bit. You know, I'm looking out the door. It's dark by this time, and I'm waiting for lights to turn in. It's 7.20, no one. 7.25, no one still, and I'm like, oh, I'm starting to get really depressed. And then at 7.35, one person showed, one girl. And I mean, I'm like, I don't even want to do this. I mean, I'm not going to sit down with this girl. Well, I'm glad your her. wife decided to be, <laughs> yeah. to be supportive of your ministry. Uh, and, well, and you know, while I'm while I'm grateful she came, I just said, listen, I'm just going to cancel. I, I I mean, I don't know. I mean, you want to pray together? <laughs> and so that's what we did. We sat there and prayed, and we said maybe next time there'll be more people. And the whole idea is, and I know that. Whenever you're you're trying to say your best, you're trying to say what's right. You say, I don't care how many people come. It doesn't matter how big my church is because I'm just responsible for those that the Lord has given to me. But deep down, it's there, you want to grow, don't you? Is that bad? It was it bad for me to want lots of people to come. I wanted I wanted five hundred. I wanted a thousand. I wanted however many would come. I think in one sense it's not bad for that because we see that in the Great Commission that Jesus gives us. You know, He tells us to go. And we're supposed to go and unleash the gospel on our world. And I think the gospel always needs to be going deeper, deeper inside of all of us and going out, you know. And so I think there's a there's a sense and where we should always expect that that the fame of Jesus is spreading. And so we shouldn't I, I think it's a good thing to hope that when we're proclaiming Jesus, people will be coming because God will be drawing them. 
It was it a failure that people didn't show them? It, it was probably a failure of your marketing. <laughs> yeah, it's bad, probably bad marketing was. strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Did you tell anybody you were doing it, or was it just like build it and they'll come? I told you I put flyers everywhere. Okay, they were all over the place. <laughs> As pastors, one of the biggest lenses through which we evaluate these things is is passages like Colossians one twenty eight twenty nine, where Paul says, "This is my life mission. I want to labor with every ounce of energy in me to present everybody mature in Christ. That's that's my goal." And then you think again of his words to the Ephesian elders before he gets on a boat and doesn't come back in Acts 20, 28. And he says, look, I want you to do two things. I want you to keep close watch over yourselves and all the flock entrusted in your care. Sam hit on some of the issues. You know, Calvin famously said of this passage, uh, the pastor who fails to keep close watch over himself disqualifies himself from keeping close watch over the flock. And so, you know, Billy Graham was famous for saying, don't touch the sex, the money, uh, or the power. And, And obviously those become very large temptations for men with a lot of power and money available and sometimes less accountability the higher they move up the mountain. It is, and you've mentioned a lot of the problems. I'm just trying to figure out whether it's okay, and I know you guys have given me the answer, but I'm, I, okay, I'm thinking of the guy who... Well, let me interrupt you then. Let me come back to Acts 2028 20, is my answer. It's okay if if you're doing what Paul describes. Have you given up on that because you're so big that your size becomes an excuse to no longer seek to keep close watch over all the well, flock? Well, I'm talking about the so small. What if it, what if you're only that one person? What if, we're talking to pastors right here who are listening to this podcast, and they've had a church for 30 years, and this church has been at you know 25, 50. I don't know what the average is. Do you guys know? I had heard once 75. Yeah, 75. 75 is what I heard. The average uh, that's size. incredible to say that. I mean, the average size of a church is 75. Are we saying the average church is unsuccessful? No. Here, here's the way that I do it in my mind, okay, is that on the day of Pentecost, right, and shortly thereafter, we know that the church in Jerusalem, after Peter's sermons, has several thousand people, okay? So we have a church plant with several thousand people. Okay, that's the right side of the ditch, okay? We have a church plant with several thousand people. The left side of the ditch is Jeremiah. And we know that Jeremiah labored for decades and had no converts. And God loved it. God said, you are a chosen instrument of mine. You are ministering wonderfully. Keep it up. Keep up the great work. And he has nothing to show for it. And I think that we have to realize is that God is the one that's doing this here. And he, we might find ourselves more like Jeremiah. We might find ourselves more like Peter. Now, each of those has its own issues that I think we need to step into. But at the same time, is I don't think numbers show God's favor or his disfavor because he's given us examples of both. I'm not saying, I, I understand that. I'm not saying whether or not objectively it does, but I think that everybody that's out there that is a pastor, they just either you, you're looking out and you see other churches that are growing around you and you say something like, what am I doing wrong? Or do I need to adjust? Or you, you want to get, you want more people and it is a perception of success. And therefore, yeah. whenever you have a mega church, it's a perception of the power of God being with you. And the question yeah. is, why do you want more people? And what's driving that sense of uh, frustration and a, and a feeling of failure? And that's where we have to keep such very close watch over our souls. Because if it's, if it's at the heart of that is basically pride and ego, then we got a problem. Um, because small church pastors do feel pressured by megachurches. And they begin to wonder, uh, you know, what's the matter with me? Uh, why can I not draw that size of a crowd? And so... Uh, that sometimes is driven by a sense of pride, a sense of uh, I want to be, 
I, w- I want to be the, a, a church where people are just dying to hear me speak and they're coming in droves and they're giving money hand over fist. Um, now, if, if the motivation is I want more people here because I really care deeply about their eternal welfare and I want to see them grow up in Christ and I think we've got a really good message and a really good ministry, it's a, that's another matter. So again, we all, the pastors who are facing this have to keep close watch over their hearts. Scripture is pretty clear. It's not a question of faithfulness versus success. For the New Testament pastor, success is defined by faithfulness. What is success for the New Testament elder? It's, it's faithfulness. And the faithful elder is going to still be doing it 20 years from now because regardless of whether or not his church explodes or stays below a size that he has ambitions for, he'll continue to shepherd the flock and trust into his care because that's why he's in ministry. And a small church pastor, if, if, if you're listening... Um, you have to be mindful of the strengths of your culture, that large churches and small churches have different strengths and different weaknesses. You gain things and you lose things. In a small church, you can do intimate, personal ministry of the word very, very well. You can know your whole flock. You can be by their bedside. You can be there when their babies are born. You can do some things that a large church pastor cannot do. You have to maximize those strengths. You might not be able to write curriculums. You're you're assuming whenever you say a large church pastor can't do because— I mean, is that the desire for if you're the pastor of a church, and we're assuming that here's one head pastor or something like that, that there's not multiple pastors and they all can do that? And and why, why would a guy that is the head pastor be frustrated that he doesn't know everybody because he's got lots of other pastors that are there that are able to do it? He may or may not be frustrated. The simple fact is he just can't do what the pastor of a church But isn't that an do. unfair criticism if somebody who is against megachurches says, I don't like megachurches because I want to know the head pastor. Why? Well, there you go again. That's not framing it in terms of strengths and weaknesses, and that's taking a strength or a weakness and elevating it to some sort of moral status. Well, I I think, though, here's the thing is that each of these, uh, a large church has unique issues. And so it's, I think a lot of it depends on intentionality, okay? And so if you have a large church that has the same size staff or structure as a smaller church does, then I think they're, they're ripe for criticism because they aren't addressing the unique issues of a large church. But if you talk to the pastor of a large church and you say, wow, how do you guys disciple that many people? And they say, yeah, we know. We know that that's a huge issue with a large church. We don't want to tell 3,000 people to stay home. God's given us this thing. And so instead, this is the way that we really work intently to shepherd the souls of 5,000 people. And then I'd say, wow, I'm, I'm so impressed that you're being so intentional. But I think a lot of times the the rightful complaint is that people are not being intentional in the unique challenges that come with a large church. And that's church. what I was saying about Acts 2028. There's the temptation for large church staff to use their size as an excuse to not do the work of Acts 2028. You have to do it differently than you did when you were a church of 80, and you better be planning for it as you grow and constantly adapting and asking yourself, how are we going to do this well? You know, Richard Baxter said this hundreds and hundreds of years ago. He said, Acts 2028 mandates, even if your parish is too large for you, you better figure out a way to get it done. You better get help. You better bring other men in to help you do this because it's non-optional. Which is the Moses, Jethro, you know, that's usually used as a story where Moses had to realize, wow, I need to restructure things now that there's so many people. Well, I know that we've talked about ecclesiology, the uh, varied aspects of ecclesiology, including liturgy and the way that you... um, the way that the church structures itself and the way that the church structures its services. Um, in ecclesiology, we is, is there certain 
traditions that have ecclesiastical structure that do not allow for a megachurch. And hold on, don't jump in yet. In other words, I have never heard of a Roman Catholic megachurch. I don't know if I've ever heard of an Anglican megachurch necessarily. I mean, I, I think I can think of a few Presbyterian. But once, once, once you become a megachurch, it seems like the ecclesiology becomes so loose. Is there a megachurch ecclesiology? That's my question. I hope that was framed right. <laughs> oh, that's a fascinating question. I do know of one Anglican church that is a megachurch, and it's Holy Trinity Brompton in London. But they're so low church Anglican. I mean, they, there is a liturgy there, but it's also a highly charismatic church as well. So um, there are probably exceptions, but generally speaking, I think you're right. Is there an ecclesiology that, uh, well, that's a good question. I, I'm of the conviction from what I, this is just strictly empirical observation, that what you see when you look at many, if not most megachurches is that it's not so much that they have a unique ecclesiology, but rather that they've had to fudge on biblical ecclesiology. Um, they have had to create structures and uh, mechanisms and external accountability boards and other things that you don't find warrant for in Scripture just in order to maintain the massive complexity of what they've created. Uh, you know, it involves huge buildings, uh, massive staffs, incredible, uh, huge budgets. Well, once, that, once you've blown up that balloon to that size, you got to keep air pumping into it. And that forces you to become somewhat uh, creative and uh, uh, in terms of what you will or won't do uh, in terms of your ecclesiology. So I don't think there's a, a, a megachurch ecclesiology. I think the problem is that the megachurch model by its very nature, the nature of its complexity and size, forces you to be a little bit loose with the ecclesiological patterns and principles we see in the New and, Testament. And maybe especially in the preaching. I mean, it's 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 like we said before. What, are you compromising something in, in order to gain size? Well, not everybody. No, no yeah. let, let's be real clear about that. I want to I want to say this. I'm going to be on record with this. There are many megachurch pastors out there who are wonderful men of God who will do what Paul said in Acts 20 when he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And if that means their congregations shrink, so be it. They will not compromise on the integrity of Scripture. So, I mean, we could all probably name quite a few right now who are very forthright, very biblically grounded, and they've actually built the, a church of multiple thousands precisely because they were faithful to God's Word. But for every one of those, I bet you there are ten who have built the size of their church based on tickling the ears of the people and uh, and, and, and adapting to the trends things. of society. Let's talk about some of those things. What would it be ear tickling? Maybe not talking about hell. Right. Not talking about uh, the wrath social of God. issues. Uh, wrath of God. Or not, opening your Bible, not opening your Bible at all during your message, giving a topical yeah, talk. Like, I, I know that, but let's talk yeah. about people that would be evangelicals, and we'd probably sit down and we'd, we would say, these guys are genuine believers. And it's not so much what they don't talk about, although those are several of the topics, what they do talk about. It's basically coping skills. You know, come to our church and we'll give you coping skills so that you'll be a more effective husband, a more effective employee or boss. Uh, we'll teach you 10 ways to maximize your uh, your income. Uh, we'll, Which are all good things, right? Certainly. Well, they, they're all good things. But, but you if can that's the you only can, thing they preach. Yeah, because you can follow those things and go to hell. Sure. So that's the challenge. Yeah. So yeah, in other words, that. if you just got a <laughs> if you just got a baptized version of Oprah or Dr. Phil, yeah. 
which is what, unfortunately, many megachurches, not all of them, I don't want to get emails about this, not all of them, but many megachurches are, in effect, just a Sam religious version. Sam <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, we also haven't mentioned something else that goes with all these, which is uh, megachurches, unfortunately, tend to scratch some of our biggest cultural itches. Uh, we're prone to cults of personality. Uh, celebrityism is a big issue in, in all of Western culture. So it seems like a strange coincidence that sometimes a church can market a man to where he almost becomes two-dimensional uh, and, and is just squeaky clean, and he becomes the face. The whole church revolves around his personality. It's no longer a plurality of elders shepherding the flock to equip them to do the work of the ministry. We all come to watch him perform. And, and it so becomes a celebrity be issue because yeah. of some uniqueness of the person who is who is in the pulpit, and and he sees his own uniqueness as the mark that pushes him forward, and then that creates the ecclesiology. Yeah, and then the challenge is, is, is it sustainable as well? Like, are we developing just a one-generation church here that when that personality dies, there's no chance anyone can step into those shoes? And so these vast buildings will, I mean, but then the challenge is, is that okay? You know, you go to Metropolitan Tabernacle in London today, and, you know, this huge personality of Charles Spurgeon was just captivating the whole world. Uh, then now it's just, uh, it's 300 people meeting in the this gigantic building, and maybe that was okay. Maybe that's what God wanted. But what we're realizing is that these are tough issues to wrestle yeah. with. Well, and, and there's, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, it's important, I think, because Mike, you really asked this at the beginning. I, I want to make sure we answer it. I don't see anything in Scripture that says a megachurch is inherently or intrinsically wrong or sinful. I don't think there's anything wrong with great numbers. Um, what are we going to tell people? You know, stop coming, go away. We're going to lock the door. Um, well, a lot of people say plant. I mean, well, it's... that's true. But in terms of, I think we ought to rejoice in the fact that more people are coming to hear the gospel proclaimed and the word of God preached, assuming that that's what's being done from the pulpit. Is there in these a right churches. answer once you get to two hundred, whether whether to plant or not? No. Or how do you, and how planting do you make doesn't that solve that problem. Some churches plant like crazy and can't stop growing. Planting actually causes their church to grow even more rather than less. But so, planting can be okay too, right? Planting's, sure. Yeah. Planting's great, but it doesn't always solve your growth problems. It may actually increase them. So it's not necessarily one way or the other that's right or wrong. No, right? you have to reckon with the people that have come to you. And if you're not compromising the gospel and they're coming, then you have to shepherd them. And I think the danger is sometimes growth is seen as uh, completely neutral to, to positive, neutral to positive. Only good things will come from it. And there's sometimes a lack of awareness of the attendant dangers and temptations. And if you can go into growth recognizing the strengths while also being very cautious uh, as pastors of how you could be compromised, how you could lose the original vision, you could be tem become tempted. L yes. Let me get real personal here. Um, uh, Not with me. Yeah. <laughs> Bridgeway. Uh, we are, if you include kids, we're probably all of our children, you're probably 1,200 to 1,300. I'm not sitting around living in fear that if 700 more adults and kids come, that we're going to cross a, a, a line of no return and we're going to fall into the abyss of compromise. I, I'm confident that will never happen. But we do not, we had a, a, a two-hour staff meeting among pastors this morning, and JJ can testify to this, not once in my five and a half years as the lead pastor of Bridgeway, have we ever formulated a strategy or created a ministry or made a decision based on whether or not it would bring in more people. It just doesn't factor in to our thinking. Now, some would say, who are listening to this, say, well, that's wrong, Sam. You should. You ought to be creating systems and strategies that will, uh, will appeal to more and more and more. Well, I'm fine if it does appeal, but that isn't the motive 
for the ministry. The motive for us is, is this consistent with God's Word? Does this exalt Christ? Does this build up people? And if it happens as, as a necessary consequence to bring in a multitude of people so that we cross the megachurch threshold, fine and dandy. I say that. I'm not real fine with it. I, I kind of <laughs> like our size, but My, fine and dandy. Yeah. But we do not strategize or create systems with the primary aim of increasing numbers. Let me and ask one, one final picture. question. We're, we're out of time. We're out of time. <laughs> i got to ask this final question, though. All of you guys are sitting there, and I want you quickly to tell us, tell our listeners, because they're, they're, they're wondering how to evaluate it. You guys all are going right now for the next six months to sit down at the the 10 biggest churches in America or around the world. You sit down. What's the thought that you say whether or not this is okay? I mean, is there is there one barometer that you can grab a hold of and say, I'm good? I would say, just to kick it off, is the person of Jesus preeminent here? This isn't like getting me to love the donuts or getting me to love the speaker. Did I love Jesus after I was a part of this community? Because if not, then I missed the point. I would say is the gospel being faithfully preached and proclaimed, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so how that So just the gospel, as long as life. they're given the gospel each time. Acts 20:27. Paul says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. I, I want to test, are you cutting corners? Are you preaching the whole counsel? Are you I, unashamed I of the hard issues as well as the easy ones? I agree with Sam. Whenever I sit down and I see somebody, they're they're going through the entire— I know that. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm Dallas Seminary bred, and I'm, you know, expositional. But if you're really going through all the scriptures, you're not jumping around to try to figure out what's the best and what's going to be the least offensive in our culture— then I, I'm really, I'm good, I'm proud, and I say, God, you're working here, no matter what the ecclesiology may be. Theology Unplugged is presented by the Credo House. For more information on the Credo House, visit www.credohouse.org.